Welcome to Inside India by UTI International. I'm your host, Ben Haywood. Join me as I embark on an exciting journey through the new and modern India. From the Dabawalas to the Tatas and the Ambanis, let's see what the future may hold for the world's largest democracy. In this series, we feature conversations with business and economic leaders who have lived and breathed the story of India as they tell us their version of what makes this such a compelling and exciting growth opportunity in the 21st century. Stay tuned. SaaS, or software as a service, has become a buzzword in recent years, and India has seen exponential growth in SaaS investments in the last decade and is now regarded as one of the global SaaS powerhouses. But the question is, what makes India such a successful global SaaS hub? The success of local SaaS companies that have made their mark globally, years of experience in the IT and BPO services, as well as world-class engineers, are multiple factors that have played a role in this. In today's episode, I'm delighted to be speaking with serial entrepreneur Ben Merton, co-founder and CEO of Unifies. After spending more than 15 years in various operational and customer-facing roles at manufacturing companies across the world, Ben discovered that existing software in the industrial sector was dated and out of touch. So he teamed up with two of his old friends to establish Unifies, a collaboration software that helps manufacturing companies drive efficiencies in their businesses and counts companies like Airbus, John Deere, and Target as his biggest customers. Ben's unique take on the India story as a country to manufacture product and export it to the developed world, rather than tapping the vast consuming middle classes of India, makes his views slightly different from most of my guests, but nonetheless, just as interesting. I'm Ben Hayward, and you're listening to Inside India. Hi, Ben. Thank you very much for uh, coming on the show. It's great to have you talking to us today. Great to be here, Ben. Another Ben. I know. I've started the series with two Bens, back-to-back Bens, and I'm Ben, of course, so there's a lot of Ben going on. Overload of Bens. Fair enough. Good. (laughs) Anyway, let's set the scene. So you've been working in India for many years now. Can you tell the listeners a little bit more about your background and how you've ended up where you are and doing what you do today? Okay, so yeah, 2000. And three, I think, was when I kind of first made the trip out there, aside from maybe when my first year at university going out for a summer to India for different purposes than what I was doing when I was working for a fund in the Bay Area. So I was working for a venture capital fund that had invested in a business. That business had invested into an Indian startup, a consumer electronics startup, which I got involved with. And so I came out to India sort of predominantly to oversee that investment for the fund. And then kind of one thing led to another. I ended up basically trying to avoid at all costs going to business school because I was kind of still in my mid-20s. And India was going through this kind of, some people will remember that 2004 to 2008 was a hugely exciting time. It's sort of the India growth story. Everything was booming. It's a very interesting economic story at that particular time. You know, people will possibly remember, the older listeners will remember that it was a time when house prices were going up by five times in as many years. It was a time where we saw this big growth of obviously BPO, KPO companies and stuff like that. So it was a very exciting place to be and a great place to avoid business school. So that was my intention at the time. And so what I did is I was looking for stuff to do. And I actually teamed up with a friend of mine at that point who was from an old manufacturing family in India. And we acquired a a distressed manufacturer of industrial enclosures for the power and automation sector. And I got very involved operationally in that. That gave me a lot of exposure to all sorts of problems in manufacturing, of which there are a great number. And I tried to solve a lot of those problems with technology, 
putting in tools and systems to sort of reduce time to market for custom products, custom engineered products and stuff like that, which was a lot of fun. And then what happened was I decided that technology was really the area that I wanted to focus on more than actually running operations in a factory in South Bangalore. And I teamed up with another friend at that point who'd also been working in manufacturing for another family business. And we basically decided that there were a number of problems that we both faced in how you manage operations in in these kinds of companies. Huge issues mainly to do with team collaboration, getting things done, and the fact that existing tools that are out there for managing collaboration in, in manufacturing operations just really kind of suck. So we decided to build essentially a, a, what they call a, a software as a service, a SaaS tool, enterprise SaaS, which uh, enables better collaboration for engineering, procurement, sales, quality management teams, allows people to come together around objectives, reduces time to market on innovation goals and stuff like that. So it was a, really about how to go from my insight in the problems of manufacturing up to solving those problems together. And we now basically build a, this SaaS platform and sell it primarily to North American markets, to the UK, to big companies like Airbus and Target, and also to a lot of smaller companies out there, mainly in the food processing industry, as well as machinery, which is kind of because my co-founder had run a food processing company and I ran a machinery manufacturing company. Yeah, great. Well, look, it's I mean, a hugely colorful journey so far. And I think a little bit more on the business, which I want to dig into later on. But for the moment, I want to kind of take it back a step. You live in Bangalore. Bangalore's standing in the world has been rocket fueled, I guess, over the last few years, uh, no pun intended with the whole startup scene there. And it's really emerged as one of Asia's leading tech startup hubs. What's been your experience living there over the last few years and observing the change firsthand? I know you're super plugged into the startup tech scene in the city. You know, can it rival Silicon Valley? You mentioned the Bay Area there, London, Stockholm, Tel Aviv. Can it be a rival to those places going forward? A lot to unpack there. It's really interesting. No, I mean, so I think going back, I mean, we've got to go back 20 years. As I said, when I first came to India, the big story was the, the TCSs, the Wipros, the Infosyses, the, the service companies basically building tech for, essentially, it started back, you know, pre-millennium because of the millennium bug. And I, I think Bangalore kind of got its place in the tech world to essentially outsource a lot of the, frankly, grunt work that needed to get done to make the millennium bug problem disappear. And that sort of resulted in the emergence of these massive organizations, which are very successful. And that was the buzz when I first went to Bangalore. And over time, that story is still a very big story in terms of the contribution of the service industries to GDP and stuff like that. So these are still huge companies. They're very successful companies. But what's happened, which I think is really interesting, is that the emergence of product companies that are coming from India and interestingly, actually, the two big examples that I can think of right now are Zoho and Freshdesk that are not in Bangalore. They're both based in Chennai. But in principle, the same concept. I mean, there's something like 3,000 SaaS-based product companies now in India, and it's growing every year. These companies didn't exist 20 years ago. They didn't exist 10 years ago. A lot of these companies really started in the last few years. 20 years ago, it was really about these service companies providing support, integration for stuff like sort of SAP integrations and, and essentially being the back office for other parts of the world. And that was what drove the initial wave. But this product, this origination of new product ideas that is now coming from India in, in large quantities is, I think, a really interesting area. And so to answer your question specifically on how that's sort of affecting Bangalore and the scene in Bangalore, I think what we're seeing is a different type of person arriving in Bangalore. We're seeing um, entrepreneurs coming in 
that are taking advantage of the opportunity for being able to build incredible products with India's amazing engineering talent and the ability to now, the ecosystem itself has really matured over the last you know, five or 10 years where previously people I think felt, and a lot of people would say, India can't build products. But I think that that's been completely proven to be absolutely not true and that some of the best products in the world, and I think many of the best products in the future, in fact, the vast majority, I suspect, will come from India, the, the software products that we're seeing coming out in SaaS. And there's a reason for that. One is, of course, that you have the incredible sort of engineering talent that's there. But the second part of it is, of course, that there is still a cost arbitrage, which makes it very cost effective to actually experiment and build products, especially in those early stages of businesses that we're sort of currently going through right now. So Bangalore itself, I think, has attracted a very interesting mix of different disciplines, entrepreneurs, founders, people who are coming to build things. And the result of that is I think there's obviously a lot more money available. To your point here about Bangalore sort of taking on Tel Aviv, I think Bangalore's already exceeded Tel Aviv. I think that in terms of venture capital, I think I was just looking at the numbers the other day, I think Silicon Valley is about $86 billion worth of venture capital received. Bangalore or India, maybe that's it's the whole country, is something like $20 billion. I think London's at about $30 billion, so, or the UK. So we're, India is, is obviously uh, very much on the map, and Bangalore is, is definitely the hub of that. And I suspect that that's going to continue dramatically as we see some of these 3,000 SaaS companies and other companies sort of increase in number and become more successful and attract more capital. And of course, what that does is it makes the city of Bangalore a very interesting place to live in because it's really bringing in people from across the world to build things. And so it's, it's becoming a, a very interesting hub from a social standpoint. The types of people that you meet there are very different to the types of people I think that you met 20 years ago, certainly within the tech community. And there's really a, a support infrastructure there. There's some really cool groups of people. There's accelerators, world-class accelerators now coming into Bangalore, where you've got, as a tech entrepreneur, you've got a lot of people around you. So you're not just the only one there at all. And the consequence of this, what you've seen is that Bangalore has come in now as a very interesting place from a social standpoint in the sense that there's obviously entrepreneurs that now come into the city. It creates a bubbling scene. There's a lot of support infrastructure for tech entrepreneurs to find people, like-minded people out there. And of course, because the money has come in, it's driven a huge amount of things to do that we didn't have when I first moved there 20 years ago. And so I remember that there were only a couple of places that you could go out in Bangalore 20 years ago, there's now huge areas. I used to live in a place called Indranagar on the 10th cross in Indranagar, which is, if you've ever been to Bangalore, it's this place that is now this sort of huge hub of activity with hundreds of restaurants and, and a huge amount of fun. I, I, I lived there 20 years ago and there was nothing there. There was one restaurant on the place. So literally entire sections of the city have sprung up with interesting fun places to go to, great food, really interesting people out there. There's a whole sort of hive of activity going on on a Friday or Saturday night, actually throughout the week. So it's it's become a very international cosmopolitan city. I think it always was, but it's sort of built on that layer upon layer. I think, you know, it's the genesis of these things that goes way back in time. I think that one of the reasons that Bangalore itself has sort of started to attract this talent is because a lot of the post-independence decisions around higher education and where funds came into Bangalore more than other cities, because I think Nehru had felt that it was a good hub for universities. And so there were some, originally some big places in Bangalore, um, the Tata Institute, for example, that had attracted a lot of funds. And so it had this kind of academic base. And I think that sort of had, it also it was a fairly small city 50 years ago. And so the result of that is that it sort of attracted more and more people from outside of the city. And that's created an interesting mix, which I think has just grown in the last 10, 20 years. Yeah, no, it's been fascinating. I was there, I spent some time there six, seven years ago now. And uh, I remember I was in Maniata Tech Park 
for a few months. It was almost impossible to get something at lunch. And I'm told now, in fact, I think in our discussions previously, you said anything you want now, just you can get it in five, 10 minutes delivered food from all over the world and, you know, all different manner of cuisine. So it's ridiculous. I mean, Swiggy and Dunzo and these consumer companies that are fantastic from a consumer perspective. The ease with which you can get things done now, it used to take forever to be able to go out and go and buy things, groceries, because the supermarket in India still is not really an evolved concept. I think I'm happy that that's the case because I don't like supermarkets. But in terms of the time it takes to go to different shops to buy things, it was kind of a pain in the neck on a Sunday afternoon was that Dunzo has just completely eliminated that. It's fantastic. So yeah, it's definitely made life easier there for sure. And I really miss it when I'm in the UK, by the way. I I find it very hard. Like... (laughs) <laughs> it's vastly too expensive to take Ubers and to get stuff done in the UK. And in India, actually, the service levels in India for all of these companies is just so much higher than it is in the rest of the world. Having spent some time recently in the UK and the US, I find it incredibly difficult, like dealing with, you know, I, can I call out here specifically British Airways as the worst service level company I've ever dealt with in the last 10 years? <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, I don't know if our uh, if our listenership is that big yet. The British Airways are going to take notice, but you're welcome to say what you like on this podcast. But anyway, I think one of the big things we keep reading about in the Western press is, and again, I keep alluding to it, is this explosion of this tech scene and, and startup scene. I think what was it sixty IPOs last year, forty unicorns created in 2021 in India. Silly question, maybe, but why now? Why is it suddenly coming of age in the last couple of years? What forces are at play there? It's such an interesting question. I think a lot of this is, you know, India is obviously, from an economic perspective, is going through a growth, consistent growth over a long period of time. The the internet itself has obviously fueled different business models, different ideas, which have affected India as much as they have the rest of the world. And of course, a lot of the growth here and a lot of that money is going into consumer tech businesses where people are hugely attracted by this obviously massive consumer market, at least in terms of the numbers of people that are out there. And so there's obviously a lot of opportunities. There are a lot of problems in India like there are everywhere else in the world. And I think that there's a huge opportunity for those problems to be solved in India-centric way, of course, for India problems and, and because of the perceived size of the market. That is obviously a big opportunity that investors and and entrepreneurs alike have kind of jumped on, I think. And is there a kind of move, clearly geopolitical factors, move away from China, money flooding in that might once have gone to places like China, clearly finding a home in India? Interesting question. So this is typically in the context of manufacturing, which is obviously a really interesting area from my perspective. I personally am not, I find it hard to advocate that India is going to be able to be a significant factor in taking away jobs from China for all sorts of very fundamental reasons about the structure of how India sort of approaches manufacturing. And there are various issues involved in how manufacturers can set up, buy land, get things done, recruit and not recruit people, which I think make it not competitive at the moment. I mean, I obviously hope that changes. But right now, the regulatory environment is prohibitive for India to take a sizable chunk of manufacturing jobs. I think in the tech world, India is going to become the de facto hub for the whole world, apart from possibly China. China is obviously very protective about its own tech industry, and it's created its own ecosystem. And I think it's very unlikely you're going to see many Indian companies penetrate into that. And likewise, I think obviously because of the inherent language advantages and all the sort of stuff that you have when it comes to sort of India's cultural connections with the rest of the world, I think that you're not going to see China really overtake 
India as far as being a tech hub for the rest of the world. I think that's totally within India's scope and it's going to be where it goes. I think manufacturing is a little bit more of a dismal outlook, to be honest, as far as India's role. And again, I hope that some of the regulatory issues do change over time. But at the moment, I think that where we're seeing, for example, post-COVID jobs going from China, they end up in places like Vietnam, which are more conducive countries to manufacturing because of the regulatory environment and because of the support that the government gives, which is unfortunately somewhat lacking in India. Yeah, no, fair point. I mean, we have seen a marginal shift the way we've seen India kind of offer some tax relief to businesses wanting to come and manufacture there. So at the margin, it it is improving. But I totally hear you on some of the big structural changes that might need to take place before India becomes a manufacturing powerhouse for the world. It brings me nicely on to the next point I want to talk to you about, which is, I mean, you have a slightly different take on the quote unquote India story. You know, a lot of the guests that I've spoken to on this podcast throughout the kind of last season, they speak very highly and they're very bullish on the consumption potential of the emerging middle class in India. And and that's kind of they built businesses around that consumption potential. Your view is slightly different, isn't it? You've built a business in India that you want to export that product to the rest of the world, but base it in India. You'll notice that when I was talking earlier about this, I said the perceived size of the Indian market, which I think is a really important qualifier for how I look at the Indian market and how I think it ought to be looked at. And again, I'm looking at this from the perspective of being an entrepreneur who's in his early 40s. I don't have 20 years, in my opinion, to find my way to build a business, which is what I think it's going to take to really build a viable consumer tech business given the where the economies are now. And I think there's a few important like facts that we need to acknowledge here. India is obviously a 1.3 billion person economy, and that's obviously massive. And I do understand that that's very appealing to people. But when you look at the other fundamentals around this, so there's certain things that we need to understand. So for example, less than around maybe a little bit more than 1% of Indians pay income tax, which I think is a fascinating number. So we're talking about 10, 12 million people who pay income tax. It's kind of like the size of Australia in terms of income tax taking. Now, obviously, there's indirect taxes that happen as well, which increase the, the load for India. So that, But you're, you're still talking about an economy in terms of sort of tax spend, certainly in terms of the government spend. It's, it's still substantially less than the UK, for example. And the UK itself, as far as any self-respecting American is concerned, is a backwater. And so we're looking at a small economy from that perspective. And I think income tax is a very interesting indicator to me of disposable income. If only 1% of the country is paying tax, and by the way, that tax taking is much, much lower as an absolute number in, say, dollar-adjusted terms or whatever it may be, it's a very small amount of actual money that's coming in. And I think that's a great indicator of where the disposable income is for people to spend. And I think it's disposable income in consumer plays that I think that really is probably the best leading indicator of the ability to build a viable long-term business. And I obviously, with all due respect to all the people who have built consumer tech businesses that have, are out there, and some of them are successful, but they're vanishingly small in relation to the number of consumer tech businesses that today have essentially negative unit economics, forget that they're not profitable, they're just not making money. And it may be, and I'm certain that in the future, because you're going to see this growth continue in India, that over a 20-year period that you're going to see huge opportunities in consumer tech. But as a sort of founder today, The question is, where is the best time that you can spend to build a business that actually makes money? And for me, I don't think personally that the Indian consumer space is the right place to be unless you're willing to play the game of flipping the burger and the valuation game, which 
again, this is all philosophical stuff. And from my perspective, call me an old codger, but my general rule is that if you're going to start a business, one of your primary objectives should be to be able to make money at some point in the not too distant future. And so I just don't see that as being the paradigm right now. And the data clearly shows that because if you just look down the list of profitable consumer tech companies in India, I think you sort of have book my show is one and basically nobody else is. And so take it how you want it to be. But the size of the Indian economy is not, to me, a great indicator of your ability as a founder to build a successful business. And so I've readjusted and my whole point of what I do today was sort of cognizant of this reality that I was definitely not going to try to build a business that primarily sells today into the Indian market, either to businesses or to consumers. Because while I think there's a lot of scope for the future, what I think is a much better play from a founder's perspective and to build a really viable business is to, again, leverage and build on the incredible engineering talent and the huge amount of people creatively solving problems here, but to sell outside and build products specifically, again, because there's, there's much more leverage, again, there's much more margin, frankly, in being able to build products if you can do that successfully from India and sell that to, ideally, Americans and possibly to Europeans as well, although you've got language issues there, which make it difficult again in the early days of a business. But eventually, I think that's what it's going to be because, frankly speaking, still the economy over there is, you know, 20 times bigger or 10 times bigger, whatever it may be. If you combine them, it's a hugely different market. And so the model, which I think is not, I'm not just the only one to, to do this, right? There's tremendously successful companies that have done amazing job of this. They're just not as well known in the Indian scene or the overseas scene because they're usually selling to businesses. So for me, the real play is build business products in India and sell them to someone outside of India. And that I think is what's going to be the winner for people. And, that, and the proof is, is, as I said, like companies like Zoho and Freshdesk, where many of your listeners probably haven't even heard of them. Freshdesk went public, I think, last year. It's got a $5 billion market cap. It's a SaaS company that sells ticketing software. It's doing $500 million in revenues. I think it started like 10 years ago. It's one of the great success stories that just has just blown up. It's just been a phenomenal success. And it makes, and when I say $500 million, $500 million in, in revenues, we're talking about 80% to 90% gross margins. And these companies make real money. Uh, there's another company, Zoho, which again, people may have heard of if you've ever tried to use any kind of business software. It's a sort of CRM. Business. It's a CRM. It's an inventory management system. It's a books accounting system. It's basically the guy who founded it, Sridhar Vembu, is an incredible guy. He's basically, it's actually, it's an older company. It's been around, I think, since the 90s. But he's sort of evolved this business. And he owns, I think, 100% of this business that does $500 million in revenues with 80% gross margins. Now, when you look at it from the founder's perspective, when you look at it from the point of view of this intention to actually make gross margins or margins or profit as a business, to me, that's a totally different uh, perspective. And these are not the only ones. There are other, there are endless other examples of existing SaaS businesses that have successfully built very, very big profitable businesses from India selling to the rest of the world. And that's, as I said, going to continue to come. The pipeline is the 3,000 companies I talked about there, and it's going to continue to go. So for me, that's where India is today. Not to say that it won't be somewhere different 20 years from now. Yeah, no, it's super interesting. I mean, it, and I'm seeing quite clearly in my head, there was the, as you said earlier, the WERPO, the TCS, those guys who were providing a service to global businesses in India, whatever it was, tech support overnight. And then there's the emerging group of businesses trying to sell to the Indian consumer. And you sit in that kind of space where you're using the vast talent pool of young Indians and 
like you said, I think more engineers in India than any other place in the world that graduate every year. Two million a year or something come out of India's university. I think it's all engineers, but it's like, yeah, an entire country of engineers comes out every <laughs> every year. <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> incredible. And, and it, yeah, it's using that vast resource to build product in India and, and sell it to the rest of the world where, like you said, margins are just higher. So yeah, fascinating. Stuff. There's two parts to this. One, I think it's it's important, like in the tech services business, in a service business, you're always going to have a lower margin on, even if you're selling to India, right? Like it, it's just a lower margin business than if you're dealing with products. If you build products and you can successfully create one instance of whatever you do and sell it to multiple people, you're inevitably going to be able to create a more profitable business than if you're just selling a cost arbitrage on people, which is what's happened. I mean, the typical rule of thumb is that somebody, an Indian engineer, say a React Native engineer or React engineer or whatever, you know, Java uh, programmer in the US will be about four times more expensive than in India. I think that's changing a lot recently, by the way, because of COVID. So we're seeing a lot of competition for Indian engineering talent, which is driving up prices. But that arbitrage works well for service businesses, and it has done historically, but it works even better for product businesses in the early stages where you're really trying to create something that's creating a flywheel rather than just being continuous supply of, of labor resources to meet that cost arbitrage. So it's very much not just the play of India being a cost arbitrage place, but the difference between building products versus building service businesses, which I think is now the new thing in India. I think what I want to do, Ben, is just what we've done is talk a lot around your business, but we haven't talked about your business per se, because it is a fascinating concept. You mentioned a little bit at the start, the first question that I leveled at you. But if you could just tell the listeners in a very short, succinct way what it is you do, the product you have built in India, and the opportunity that you see to sell that product outside of India, that'd be great. Right. So we've built basically a cloud-based SaaS platform that is essentially a collaboration tool. So what it looks like and feels like for people who've used WhatsApp, it feels like a WhatsApp for business processes. So what we've done is essentially built on various tools and infrastructure in India, hosted in US servers. We've been able to build a system that we can sell to manufacturing companies where they're able to now come in and collaborate around processes, innovation processes. So what I mean by that is engineering processes, new product development, stuff like that which up till now has been very much driven primarily by email and these old systems like ERP tools and PLM systems where you've got sort of very structured, data-centric, data-heavy systems that need a lot of human sort of input to get them to work. What we've identified as a problem, which we now solve, is really about getting teams together around those processes on innovation, making those processes work better and faster. And the result of this is that companies are able to use Unify as it kind of plugs in with email, it's a simple chat-based tool, super, super easy to get set up. And you can put it in, get it going for, a, say, an R&D team or a quality management team in a $100 million, $200 million manufacturing company in the US. And they will then be able to start using it pretty much that day and be able to collaborate much faster and then measure and reduce the time it takes to complete processes that depend upon lots of teams coming together. So in manufacturing, this is the biggest problem. You've got lots of different, highly skilled teams that need to come together to get things done. And it's a big challenge for these teams to do that. In the tech world, it's, it's slightly different problems. You have these sort of agile teams of, say, six or seven people that, that can come together and solve problems dynamically and push to a product in the cloud. In the manufacturing world, it's much more complicated than that. We have a lot of other problems we need to solve. And that usually requires different skilled people to come together. And the result of that is the time to develop new products, for example, or the time to implement any change in a company 
takes a long, long time. And those times are strategically critical to those organizations that care about innovation, which is, should be every organization, because obviously innovation is the next thing for the organization. And so we're able to measure and reduce that time in a chat-based interface. It's super easy to use. As I said, you would see it and understand it and, and, and get it working very quickly for yourself if you were running a manufacturing company then. <laughs> no, it, it makes a lot of sense. It's kind of like a Slack then for these manufacturing companies. So if you've used Slack, I mean, the problem is in the manufacturing world, about 1%, we've done studies on this, about 1% of manufacturers have heard of Slack. So they haven't heard of Slack. And that's not because manufacturers are, are kind of these laggard people who are technical Luddites and they don't care. It's because Slack doesn't work in manufacturing. <laughs> that is the problem. It doesn't work actually in, in any business where you have complex workflows. Slack breaks down completely because you have, I'm not, I don't know whether you've used Slack. It's a, it's a great tool. We've, we've used it ourselves in the past. It's fantastic for developers. It was built for developers. It was not built for manufacturing companies. That was the problem with it. <laughs> I've got half an hour on the time and, you know, I could talk to you for hours about this stuff because I find it fascinating. But looking to wrap things up now, one of the questions that I ask all of my guests is what one thing would you like my listeners to think differently about India? You know, I think India as a country, it just seems to have a lot of preconceptions, not necessarily misconceptions, but preconceptions. People think they know what India is or means or stands for. And you've lived there for a long time. You've traveled the world, the US, the UK. You must hear a lot of these. What one thing would you like to level at these people that might think or feel a certain way about India that's not necessarily true? India is not the land of call centers. It's the land of product and innovation. And that's what's going to happen. Like you're going to see it. And I think people do perceive from outside that that's what their primary, a lot of people's interaction is with India. Uh, there's obviously lots of things that, that they do, from a business perspective, that's what people perceive. And so for me, it's understanding that the India growth story is very much there on the consumer side. It is obviously going to become probably the, certainly the top three biggest economies in our lifetime. And it's going to be a very interesting place to do business from the perspective of consumer and the, the market, the domestic market. But today, I think it's just, it's an incredible place to build things. So if you are looking at starting any kind of tech business, I think you need to be considering India as a place to build out your tech team, certainly. And even forget just tech, it's sales now. Like we have sales guys in Unifies that are sitting out of Bombay. We have a customer success person right up in, in the Himalayas, up in, in Palampur. We have people spread out who are selling and servicing from India to the rest of the world. So it's this understanding that the skills in India have got so much better and will continue to grow so that we're not just dealing with engineering talent as well. We're dealing with the softer skills, the selling skills, and, and those other things that uh, I think uh, India is going to play a huge role in the next 20 years. And you're going to stop. I think the problem has been up till now, frankly, that everyone has assumed that India is just this, again, cost arbitrage place. And so the result of that is that there's been a race to the bottom on paying the lowest salaries possible to get Indian support center staff. And those are the people that people have interacted with primarily in the West up till now. But that's all set to change if you haven't already had a sales call from a highly polished and brilliant salesperson from India. I'm certain in the next 10 years, you will start getting them if you're running a business or involved in any kind of business. And you'll find that actually, I think that as a country that's going from a relatively low income bracket to a higher income bracket, I feel that there's a need, an internal need as a country to grow. Whereas I feel like in the West, we've become kind of complacent. And I think that's going to reflect in kind of the service levels that we see. We're going to see much higher levels of service and, and support from Indian companies. And it's just going to get better and better from that perspective. Amazing answer. And, and lots to think about there as, as we wrap things up to go away and ponder on. So 
Ben, I've really, really enjoyed chatting with you today. Thanks for coming on. And I look forward to watching Unifies grow in, in the months and years to come. And uh, hopefully seeing you in, in Bangalore face to face in the not too distant future. Well, thanks so much, Ben. It's been fantastic. You have been listening to Inside India with me, Ben Haywood. If you like what you have heard, make sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or indeed, wherever you might listen. Don't forget to leave a review and a rating and tell us about your favorite episode. We will be back with a brand new episode in two weeks time. Until then, stay safe.